Chapter 11 The fun, if you can call it that, begins. Sunday, 19 July, 1970. War Games, Day 1. Guantanamo Bay Combat Drill Zone. 0400. Now, Reveille, Reveille, all hands, heave out and trice up. A smoking lamp is lighted in all authorized spaces. The crew came to life. The morning meal was completed at 0500. The umpires reboarded aboard at 0600. 0700. Each ship in the nest broke off and set sail to the combat drill zone, taking their place in their squadron formation. The Res Des Div 5 battle group scenario was a typical wartime cruising formation, screening an imaginary carrier group. The squadron would come under attack by the Gitmo adversary force from 0800 into 1200 hours. The squadron would then be involved in an ASW exercise with the Amberjack. That means that every ship in the squadron was responsible for finding that Foxy sub and coordinating a pattern of sub-detection and destruction. The command flag was on the USS Lansing DD-770. In the squadron were the Car DE-383, the Longmire DE-219, Broussard DD-734, and the Roberts DE-749. Each ship had a job to do for the squadron in this screen scenario. Along with performing the normal operations of screen escort service, the umpires and those in the drill assignments on the Guantanamo Bay Navy base were required to present problems to each department that could happen during normal operations. The problems each had a time limit in which they were to be identified, resolved, and while at the time being graded by the umpires. The bridge umpire was Commander Jack Garrett, an officer with three years' experience in these games. He had met Robert Mills several years ago when he was an XO on the Rogers. Commander Mills was assigned to the Rogers to assist some organizational development work. Other umpires managed grading operations in Radio Central, CIC, the engine room, and one at each torpedo, hedgehog, gun mount, and depth charge rack. There were umpires in the galley and the pilot house. It was exactly 0730. The umpires were in place on the card. The intercom came alive on the bridge. Bridge combat. It was Jaworski. The captain keyed the intercom. Bridge. We're all set down here, Captain. That was the code they had set last night to inform the captain the bogey seen last night had showed up. Very well. He turned to the boats and mate on the watch. Prepare for general quarters, boats, if you please. The boats and mate of the watch keyed the one MC. Now prepare for general quarters. Every member of the crew proceeded quickly and quietly to their battle stations. The umpires noted the movement and suspected the sub had been recognized without standard signals present. They noted the account. Nothing was said. Maybe the plan was not only working, but approved by the umpires. The umpires would call foul if the crew did anything that was not within the rules of the game. The Cards Officer Corps and most of the higher enlisted personnel suspected not all the rules were published and most favored the adversary force. In the meantime, the card moved through the waters in line with the other ships in the squadron. At that moment, a messenger from CIC entered the bridge and handed the captain a note. It read, 005, 1500 yards, 75 feet. The captain read the note. He tapped his XO on the upper arm with the back of his hand. Mac. The XO looked over at him. He handed him the note. Commander Garrett noticed the transaction. He was curious as to the contents of the note, but said nothing. The XO passed the note to the deck officer. The deck officer handed the note to Mr. Winthrop. He folded it and handed it off to the messenger, who took it to Lieutenant Grubal. She read it 
and put in her shirt pocket. At precisely 0800, Commander Garrett keyed the 1MC and announced, Began the drill! At that moment, the Amberjack's electronics came on and was spotted by all the ships in the squadron. Bridge CIC, subsided, bearing 005. Sound general quarters, the captain ordered. There was a clanging to be heard from the GQ bells on all the ships in the squadron. But while the other crews were scrambling to their battle stations, the cards crewed simply donned their battle gear. Each person's battle gear had a built-in communication system allowing all connected to hear and respond to every word spoken by the battle stations during the encounter. Strict radio protocol required no one to speak unless it was their turn. Each department began reporting in. Radio man and ready. Bridge CIC, bogey 005, range 1500, depth 75 feet. After steering man and ready, forward watch man and ready, and it went on until they all had checked in. All this was happening while the car's battle crews were preparing to attack on the sub. While the Amberjack set torpedoes to fire at the Lansing, the card had the sub's bearing. The captain stood on the starboard porch of the bridge area, gazing over the forecastle. He could see the gunners dressed in their life jackets and steel helmets were crouching behind the breach. They looked every bit the gallant combat sailors he had been preparing them for with just an occasion like this. Come right, zero, zero, 005, hold steady, all ahead, one-third. Zero, zero, 005, aye, all ahead, steady, one-third, aye. The ship came around and increased in speed. Range, 1,500 and closing. Set depth charges to 75. Depth charges to 75, aye. Depth charges were already armed. They were in their proper depth. The Amberjack recognized the car's attack and broke off and began to dive. Jack made us. He's increasing speed and diving. Make ready the hedgehogs. Hedgehogs ready, Captain. Sub is going deeper. Fire hedgehogs. Fire. The hedgehogs were shot in front of the ship and sank in the correct depth. An electronic beam signaled ignition. Bridge, CIC. We lost him. Rats, the captain spat. You can bet we'll be their number one target from here on out, said Mr. McCormick. You're correct, Mac. We have awakened the dragon. Jack has reverse direction, is now heading for us. Range 2,000 yards, 7-0 feet. Come right, zero, 09 or zero, and heavy on the gas. Ready on the depth charges. The little ship turned in reverse direction. Set charges to 70 feet, reduce speed in 8 knots. 8 knots, aye. He'll catch us. He'll catch up. Right now he thinks we're running. By the time he realizes we've slowed, he'll be on us and we can drop the cans on him. Jack is 50 yards and slowing. Fire starboard depth charges. Fire starboard depth charges, repeated Grubal. The firing process shot the depth charges into the air, enough to clear the ship, and then it dropped into the water and sank. At 75 feet, the ordnance sent a signal that served as the detonation. Fire port charges, and continue at will. The card made pattern run, dropping the cans into the ocean and recording the detonations. The empires noted the depth charges were all set correctly, but they missed the sub. They would have been some minor damage, but no sink. The Amberjack reversed engines, backed off, and made a right turn, then dove with increased speed. The umpire entered information into the log. Without taking his eyes off his book, he said, You made the sub break off, otherwise your flagship would be abandoning ship right now. You picked up some good points on this one. An hour went by with no sightings. Finally, the silence was broken. This is CIC. Sub sitting 100 feet, not moving, 2,000 yards dead ahead. The destroyer Lansing and D.E. Longmire both sighted the jack. The Lansing is circling. Looks like he's doing a 360 trick on the sub into thinking that he's breaking off. I think he's hoping to catch him from behind, said McCormick. Shall we run a pattern, Captain? A D.E. 
Can do a 360 and 400 yards, the captain thought out loud. It takes a DD almost 900 yards. We could do the same, and the Jack would think we both broken off. We can catch him before he knows what we're doing. The captain ordered the helmsman to do a 360-degree turn. While the engines revved at 12 knots, the little ship tilted hard to the port as it cut a circular slice into the sea. The amberjack was not fooled. It disappeared and settled on the bottom. Good idea, people, the umpire said. But he got away. No points for you on this one. An hour dragged by, and then another. Finally, the bridge intercom crackled. Bridge CIC. I think he's directly below us at 150 feet. All stop. All stop. Where's he now, Sonar? Hanging with us, Captain. He ain't none too happy with us, I think. He's ignoring the bigger ships, and he's focusing on us. I recommend all ahead one-third and run a pattern 17, came the voice of the ASW officer. Set depth charges to 150. We will go pattern 17, the captain ordered. Come left, 90 degrees. 90 degrees, aye. Engine room, give me eight knots. On station, Captain. Eight knots, Captain. Fire depth charges in pattern 17 salvo. Firing depth charges. We can get him to surface. We can fight him topside. The ship ran 1,500 yards, dropping depth charges, then reverse direction, continuing the same pattern. The sub is gone, Captain. What? How did he get away? Two torpedoes in the water and closing off the port beam bridge. Submarine sighted off port beam, 750 yards and heading away. He's fired stern torpedoes and hightailing it out of town, said the CIC. All ahead, flank. Come left to 252 and get us out of here, came the order from the captain. The ship bore heavy in the waves. The torpedoes missed by less than two yards off stern. Shall we try another pattern, Captain? Mr. Winthrop asked. Negative. Continue the search. The bridge umpire spoke up. You can secure from GQ, Captain. You missed him. He's a fox. I'll give him that. That he is. But you gave him a run for his money, and he'll not soon forget that. Usually the first day he hits the first two ships and plays with the others. It has been a while since he's been chased away. You'll get another shot at him tomorrow. And he'll get another shot at us. You can count on it. The other ships in the squadron may get a day off, at least until they get you. Yeah, thanks a lot. The next time I need a build down, Commander Garrett, I'll give you a call, the captain said as he slapped the umpire on the shoulder. That's what I'm here for, Bob, any time. 1700. The card pulled into the assigned slip at the piers. All hands were elated at their success today. Everyone did their job and did it well. There could be celebrating in the EM Club and the AC Ducey Club tonight. For Chief Petty Officers, the Goat Locker Club was a destination located on Guantanamo Bay's historic Marine Hill. 1800. The boats and mates sounded the word for Liberty Call. Now, Liberty Call, Liberty Call, Liberty for all hands, Section Alpha and Charlie and Delta, except those in depth charge reclamation crew. Liberty expires on board 2359 tonight. Now, Liberty Call. Lieutenant Grubal removed her hat, opened the wardroom door, and entered. She placed her hat in the designated spot and went directly to the refreshment counter and poured a cup of tea. Lieutenant Sterling entered the wardroom from the back, where she and Miss Grubal shared a stateroom. How's Vincent doing with that top gun? Actually, they're getting along quite well. When they think no one can hear them, she calls him Robbie, and he calls her Brenny. Sterling raised her eyebrows at the sound of that. That's not for rebroadcast, you understand. Roger that. The sailors with Liberty Passes took turns crossing the card's quarterdeck, saluting the ensign, then saluting the O.D. Permission to go ashore? 
permission granted. Each member of the Liberty Party then stepped across the brow of the adjoining ship, turned toward the fantail in the direction of the ensign, saluted the ensign, then saluted the quarterdeck of O.D. Permission to cross to the pier? Granted. This continued until they had crossed the ship that was tied to the pier. From there, they stepped onto the pier where they awaited the bus ride to the enlisted clubs. The officers either walked to the O Club or took a car. 1830. A small minesweeper pulled up next to the nest with the spent depth charges from the channel. The reclamation crews from the ships in the nest secured those that were their ship's name on them and stowed them in the area for reclamation. Those who were in Gitmo for the first time were surprised when the bus that pulled up was a tow motor tractor pulling three cattle cars connected by trailer hitch. There were no seats in the cars. Everyone was required to stand. They were all crowded into the cars and held on as the tractor towed them toward the dock and down the road to the clubs on base. Recognizing the cattle car type transportation, a loud moo chorus began, and soon every sailor on board added their own moos to the chant. It lasted all the way to the clubs. The moo chorus was louder and in a happier vein coming back from hundreds of sailors very well under the influence of adult spirits. 1930. Captain Mills decided to visit the officers' club. Perhaps he might get a chance to see the captain of the Amberjack. Captain Sorensen had told him that the Amberjack skipper enjoys hanging out at the bar collecting accolades for his boat's successes. It was a good night for a walk, so he chose that mode of transportation instead of ordering a car. He enjoyed the warm, fresh Cuban air as he strolled along collecting salutes from the sailors and junior officers who were returning to the nest after exploring the base. As he passed the Windjammer Club, he recalled the brochure the Navy base distributed telling them it was a fine cuisine. Maybe I'll stop in there on the way back, he thought. A steak would be nice, a pleasing end to a successful day. Rick's Lounge, located inside the Bayview Complex, is the only officer's club on Guantanamo Bay. It serves as a safe haven for military officers assigned to the base and those from ships visiting the bay. The door opened with a pull on the highly polished brass door handle, and he stepped inside. The voice of Brooke Bitten greeted the captain's ear, singing Rainy Night in Georgia, playing over the sound system compliments of Radio Gitmo, the base armed forces radio station. He found the bar and settled in. The bartender had just brought him a stein of beer when a voice three stools down captured his attention. So you're the captain of the card, is that right? That would be me, Robert Mills. He turned to face the commander who had asked the question. The voice came from a young, handsome man in khakis, wearing a floppy officer's cap with salty officer's crest. He had an athletic build and a day-old beard. He was chewing a half-lipped cigar. His attempt at a nonchalant look was compromised by a bright, shiny belt buckle and spit-shine cordovan shoes. I'm Jack Westaway, the skipper of the Amberjack. You can call me Jack. We've been calling you Jack all day. Well, we've been calling you some names as well, and none of them as clean as the word Jack. The word Jack was not used cleanly, I assure you. I was told your crew was a bunch of Shanghai ne'er-to-wells that could not make it in the real Navy on a real Navy ship. That reputation was not apparent today. We came to Gitmo to change that reputation. Well, your crew made a good showing today, and I'm not used to being chased around by any ship, and especially a reserve ship. I gotta tell you, I didn't like it. I got a reputation too, you know, and it's one I intend to keep. 
Foxy is sub in the U.S. Navy, I hear. Foxy is sub in any Navy. You were lucky out there today, but luck does not last against skill and experience. I'm giving you fair warning, Captain Mills. You have won the dubious honor of being number one on the hit parade. I will expect nothing less. Let me buy you a drink, Captain Jack. What do you drink? Oh, never mind. Let me guess. Jack and water. You figures me right, mate. But save it. In a few days, you can buy my entire attack crew, Jack and water. Or you'll buy my entire ASW crew a round of beer. Deal? The most sinks win? Asked the Captain Jack, holding up a glass of Jack and water. Most sinks or disables? Deal. If we get you to the surface, that will count as well. Uh, okay, deal. I'll see you on the surface. I'll be there, taking on your survivors. Yeah, we'll see who takes on survivors, Mills responded. With that, he took a last swallow from his stein, swiveled around, slid off the stool, and exited the building. I think I made him sufficiently mad, he thought. And mad men fight like fools. He's an arrogant sort. In spite of our performance today, he still thinks it was luck. Let's hope he's so obsessed with sinking us that he'll get too haughty and take risks that will favor us. 2100. The captain called a meeting of the officers, chiefs, and senior enlisted to review the day's activities and analyze the tactics used by the Amberjack as well as their own offensive actions. They gave particular attention to the times they had improvised and reacted to the opponent's methods. The captain took an axiom from the art of war. Do not repeat the tactics which have gained you one victory, but let your methods be regulated by the infinite variety of circumstances. Chapter 11. Executive Assessment. Functioning as a Team in the Midst of the Crisis. The normal daily operations of any organization consist of groups of people working together to accomplish worthwhile objectives for the benefit of the organization. Whether unusual major operations or daily routine operations, those groups of people must function as a team. An ops team is made up of individuals, each with a special set of skills honed to excellence. The effectiveness of these teams depends on how well each individual applies those skills in the team setting. You have heard the cliché, there is no I in team. That being said, there is an I in victory. For a team to be victorious, every individual, every I, must apply their individual skills for the benefit of the team. It is the committed contribution of the expert individual in concert with other expert individuals that win the day. Each member of a successful team prides him or herself on being the best at what they do and consider it their ethical and moral responsibility to ensure the other team members can rely on them to apply those individual skills and personal integrity to the mission at hand. Effective operational teams begin by hiring individuals with operational skills needed to ensure organizational success or hiring individuals who are trainable to high levels of performance. Those individuals should receive an ongoing training and educational opportunities to ensure their continued competence and by rewarding them for their individual efforts. One does not surrender personhood or individual pride in their skills when they become part of the team. On the contrary, their personality, their personhood, 
and their skills are employed in concert with others on the team as each individual person and skill is focused on that accomplishment of the objective. Like an orchestra, it is the uniqueness of the flute and the technique of the flautist playing a part separate and distinctly different from the part played by the skilled trombonist that creates the beauty or the grandeur of the piece. They may each have a turn at a solo in the piece that brings out the talent of the player and the grace of the instrument, that when the piece is over, the listener is blessed. Like each member of an organization team, they must play the part they were prepared to play and do it so others' contributions will not go to waste. After every victory on the battlefield, individuals are rewarded for their part in the success of the operation. After the individuals have been decorated, honored with medals or commendations, they can receive team commendations. If individuals are recognized by their individual contribution, there is an incentive to exceed for the team at another opportunity. You will notice the executive team considered the suggestions of the senior enlisted and made decisions based on their recommendations. It is axiomatic that before an executive would authorize an action that affected the integrity of the organization's operation, they would need evidence the senior hourly employee was competent and probably correct. This confidence comes from giving those who flip the switches and apply the tread to the road a chance to become that dependable and then allowing them to prove their worth in everyday events. Captain Mills made it his business to meet with the captain of the Amberjack. Maintaining professional relationships with executives from other organizations, both in the same field and in different fields, is recommended as a method of accumulating a Rolodex of contacts. Professional associations put an executive in touch with other executives where information can be shared as a way of keeping abreast of the business climate. Attendance at association meetings, industry conventions, conferences, and expos keep the executive in the know. One never knows when those associates can help you out of a jam. Networking and politicking is how business gets done and problems are worked out. The most effective executives are those who know who to call and how to get in touch with other executives when needed. The captains agreed on a friendly wager on the outcome of the events. Friendly wagers add to the excitement of the competition. One must never wager company resources on such adventures, though. Command Axioms Those skilled at making the enemy move do so by creating a situation to which he must conform. They entice him with something he is certain to take, a lure of ostensible profit. They await him in strength. The strength of individual experts band together make a formidable defense. There are no more than five primary colors, and yet, in combination, they produce more hues than can ever be seen. Sun Tzu, Art of War Causing the opponent to lose perspective by being so intent on winning at all cost, thereby making mistakes give you the upper hand. One wins battles by making no mistakes. Making no mistakes is what establishes the certainty of victory, for it means conquering an enemy that is already defeated. Do not repeat the tactics which have gained you one victory, but let your methods be regulated by the infinite variety of circumstances. Sun Tzu Art of War.